The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Hello and welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. This is the show for culture makers, uh, which is all of us. We want to help you think about the nature of human beings and what we do and make with the raw materials of creation. And how do those cultural activities reflect our relationship to God, to one another, and to the world? I'm Ryan Aris, and today it's my pleasure to welcome Reverend Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin to the show. Dr. Sandlin is Fellow for Public Theology and Cultural Philosophy with the EICC. He's the founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership in California, and he maintains an active preaching and lecturing schedule in North America and abroad. Dr. Sandlin writes prolifically. He's the author of several books and scores of articles on the relationship between Christianity and culture. This is episode two of season one of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. This season is all about culture, and today we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. But we're doing it in a way that most people these days don't really talk about, in talking about Christianity and imperialism. We're here in this episode... Um... Let's back, back up one second uh, for some context here. The Christian faith was, was born under the shadow of the Roman Empire. Uh, and the early apostles, the writers of the New Testament, they were at pains to make clear that Jesus Christ and not Caesar is the true and divine emperor. We can discuss why it's not only appropriate to talk about the gospel as imperialistic, um, but why all of us are inevitably serving one empire or another. Yes. And then uh, we'll try to conclude by offering some practical illustrations of what it looks like to live and work in the empire of Jesus Christ. Yes. Uh, we always start our our episodes with a uh, with a reading from Scripture here to kind of guide and inform our our uh, the direction of our conversation. And I've chosen among several that I could have chosen um, Mark one fourteen to fifteen. So I'm just going to read that for everybody's uh, hearing right now. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Andrew, um, what, uh, what's, what, what would you say is the original context of this passage? And then uh, what would that mean for us in a, uh, in a 21st century context? Now that's a good question, a great initial question. Brian, and let me start by just uh, thanking you for the invitation. I'm uh, grateful to work with you and Dr. Joseph Food and all of the folks at the Ezra Institute. You're just doing a remarkable job, and we in the Center for Culture Leadership just uh, feel our hearts are knit to yours and have the same vision. So uh, it's just a delight. So back to the question. Oh, thanks uh, for saying that. Most of the most of the Jews who would have heard Jesus say, repent, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, would have had an understanding of the kingdom of God. Uh, it's uh, mentioned a number of times, uh, implied or stated, uh, in the Old Testament. There's, of course, the, uh, the Davidic kingdom. Saul was the first king, but, of course, the great king David, and then Solomon, and then later, of course, the division. But then the great promises uh, of the future kingdom, which we read about uh, in the prophets, and, of course, David and others of the psalmists write 
about God's universal reign right. would have understood about the kingdom of God. So when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom is at hand, what they would have understood him to be saying is the reign of God is near in a very tactile, uh, palpable way. You're saying that it wasn't some kind of mystical or spiritual um non-tangible thing the kingdom of god had very real concrete kind of uh significance for for those those early hearers yes uh, that's a great distinction we sometimes think of the kingdom of god the basilea as sort of the ethereal heavenly kingdom that god is sort of out there the jesus mm. is way up there kind of looking down and uh, you know just hoping everything is going all right almost that's yeah. not the idea at all the Jews were, uh, of course, subject to Roman authority at the time, and they knew of the promises of the Old Testament that God would bless Israel uh, in very specific tactile ways. Uh, the, the only real difference um, between Jesus, what Jesus said in the Old Testament, is he was kind of bringing to an apex that he himself was the king and the kingdom. So when he said, repent for the kingdom uh, is at hand, what he in essence was saying, Ryan, is repent because the king is finally here. God's anointed one, the Christ, the, the Messiah. And so as he went around to, and preaching and teaching, of course, there's the message of repentance, there mm -hmm. are the exorcisms, there are the healings, there's the, of course, also and clearly at the center of everything, particularly with his disciples, the declaration of his death and resurrection. So he really is, it's not just a kingdom, which is the reign of God, but the king himself who was there. Um, I'd like to also say that uh, when we use that term kingdom, people often can get the wrong idea. The kingdom of God is simply the reign of God. So in specific ways, wherever there are churches in submission to Jesus Christ, families ordered according to the word, specific word and spirit of God, and businesses, and farmers, and uh, salespeople, whatever in their lives or in their context, they bow the knee to the king, King Jesus, the, the crucified and risen one, and live, not sinlessly, but nonetheless in submission to him. There is a manifestation of the kingdom of God. That's what we mean when we use biblically, when we use the term the kingdom of God. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. So you, you, wrote, uh, you wrote an article not too long ago called The Biblical Gospel is Imperialistic. That, that kind of must raise some eyebrows whenever you use the word imperialism. Um, I studied, uh, I did my undergrad degree in history, and I had a, uh, I had a prof say that uh, empire is, and imperialism is not a word for scholars, but it's not going away. <laughs> um, Interesting. But you, you point out that uh, to talk about the kingdom of God is inescapably to talk about empire. Uh, so why is it uh, why is it fitting to talk about the gospel as imperialistic? Yeah, good good question. So we know that the term gospel in Greek, the euangelion, the evangel, we would say, yeah, uh, is the good news. What a lot of people are unaware of is that's not uh, that word is not uh, invented. Was certainly not invented by biblical writers. It was fairly common uh, at the time in the Roman Empire, and it was used mainly with respect to the emperor. Uh, the emperor would issue uh, gospels, we could say gospel messages. Uh, huh. We could refer sometimes to the uh, to the one declaring he would dispatch someone 
for instance, to go to various towns and hamlets and let's say there was a great military victory or there was a great change and he wanted to announce this, well, he would come and he would be the herald or the gospel herald. And people would come and say, oh, there is a gospel we need to hear, a, a piece of good news. So Interesting. The, uh, interesting that this word was the same word that is used by the early biblical writers and, well, let's be honest, by the Holy Spirit because he's the one that inspired them to refer to this message of uh, the New Testament, Old Testament too, by the way, but specifically of Jesus Christ and the New Testament to deliver. It's basically the gospel is the good news of the emperor. And our emperor is Jesus Christ. He is our king. He is our emperor. So hmm. in the New Testament, the message of the gospel is the imperial message. And you began with that wonderful text in Mark, and of course you could have read a number of other ones, and that's why when Jesus comes, he immediately says, I'm going to die and rise again, trust in me and go to heaven. Well, that's not wrong, but that's actually much narrower than the biblical gospel, the biblical evangel, which is that in the gospels there is the message that I, Jesus Christ speaking, I'm going to die on the cross for man's sins and rise again in great victory, rise into the heavenlies and rule and reign, shedding my spirit on my people began first, of course, powerfully uh, in the day of Pentecost to extend my good news in the earth. Now, but then we get down to the real question, Ryan. What is this good news? Why is the gospel good news? It's yeah. Not very kingly. Well, yeah. We what's the news read, about? We think about Genesis chapter three and the promise of the one who was to crush the head of the, the seed of the serpent. Mm -hmm. And Jesus Christ essentially came and died on the cross to overturn this evil and poison that Satan had introduced, and of course man colluding with him on this. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is how our Lord himself, God's emperor of the world, is overturning sin in every area of life and culture. It begins with right. us, we trust in Christ, but it also relates to our families and our church and our businesses and, and politics. In other words, every area where sin is found, the gospel of Jesus Christ is designed to overcome it, to defeat it. And there you see the kingdom of God element. The king is ruling. He is putting down all enemies. In fact, that's the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, isn't it, when he's talking about death, the last enemy that will be vanquished. Right. We've already talked about other. So the gospel, the message of Christ's death and resurrection, is designed to put down, to crush all of God's enemies, as any king would. Same language is used in Colossians about Jesus Christ even on the cross, making a spectacle of his enemies, the powers and so on. The ancient kings would march through the streets. He would drag his uh, his enemies, his defeated foes, through the streets for all of his subjects to look upon. This is the language, the biblical language of the gospel. That, in just a few minutes, is why we call the gospel imperial. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and... Uh... These, these biblical claims about, uh, sort of the cosmic scope, if I can use that term, the universal scope of the, the reign and the lordship of Jesus, is that, uh, that's a deliberate contrast to the claims of the empires of men. Yeah, no. in fact, um, some scholars would, uh, suggest, and I think there's great truth here, that the biblical gospel was, in that historical context, meant specifically to be counter-imperial. And huh. certainly it's not only that, because the gospel is also a message of how we will be with the Lord forever. That includes this eschatological aspect. 
dimension. It's very interesting. Uh, in preparation for this, Ryan, I went back and looked at a book I read many years ago. I hope that maybe your listeners will write down the title. Lovely book by Ethelbert Stauffer, titled Christ and the Caesars. Uh, one thing that the Caesars would often do at the time as a means of their propaganda is striking points. We call it numismatic. Right. Of course, today we have the internet, right, and TV, and that's how politicians, people talk about politicians using TV well. Well, of course, there was no TV then, so they would get their message out in a number of ways. Well, one of them was stamping coins. Huh. And essentially, Stoffer's book is about that. He makes a statement here, a fascinating statement about Caesar Augustus and one coin that was found in Spain that pictures Caesar Augustus as the great savior of the world. Salvation being found in none other save Augustus. There is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Wow. Uh, if, if, if any uh, of our listeners say, hmm, that sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. See, really, that's, that's the language of the book of Acts, isn't it? When Peter makes that declaration about Christ himself. So that's one example, and I could mention a number of specific examples, uh, about how Jesus Christ, the King, has come, and this is why, by the way, that the Roman Empire so despised Jesus Christ. They didn't despise Christ for the same reason that the Jews did. Now, if you think about it for a minute, why did the Jews want to crucify Jesus Christ? Well, he claimed to be the Messiah. Right. And he came strongly criticizing the Jewish hierarchy that had really turned their back on the law of God. For that reason, they were infuriated and wanted to crucify him. And also because he wasn't an immediate political ruler. That, that's, that's another fact of it. Sure. But those sort of, quote, religious issues weren't of any interest to the Roman Empire. They couldn't care less, basically, whether Jesus was, quote, the Messiah. But there was one aspect of his teaching that they found to be particularly troublesome, all the way going back, all the way uh, to Herod, their puppet, and so on, mm -hmm. that he claimed to be the king. Whenever somebody said, oh, the king has come, then the Roman leaders that were there, they would say, what? Tell us, what is that about? Right. That was a claim that Jesus Christ was a direct threat to their authority. And so Christ's death was a collusion between the Jews, of course, of the time and the Romans. And we're talking specifically now about the Romans because his claims are counter-imperial. His gospel says, I have come to establish another kingdom and to overthrow your kingdom. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't come to raise up a political army. In fact, he strongly opposed that. Right, yeah. Uh, and, and the Christianity is not, is, is not a, a, physical militia designed to enforce uh, the law of God on anybody. Right. It begins, however, in men's hearts, and as men and women and young people are changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit of God and by the gospel, they start living as they should in all areas of life and gradually overtake institutions and reform institutions, including politics, in a godly way. And that, indeed, is a threat to the empire, and that's why the Romans crucified Jesus Christ. You, you said something there that uh, that connects with something that I read uh, in this article uh, that I just, uh, maybe you can say a little bit more about it. Um, you wrote, uh, and again, I'm paraphrasing it, but you wrote that it's uh, it's important to understand that uh, that our, our struggle today for, and you mentioned religious liberty, uh, protecting the family, and advocating biblical sexuality, for example, are not the results of faithful gospel ministry. They're not tasks sort of in addition to or tacked on to the gospel. Uh, they're an indispensable part of gospel ministry. Just thinking, um, why, why do you mention those examples in particular? I mean, these are, these are certainly kind of headline type subjects, but, uh, but I, I don't, I don't get the sense that you're saying 
the gospel is meant to sort of map one-to-one onto the planks in a conservative political platform. No, I agree with that. I, I mentioned those. I mean, I could have mentioned a lot of them. Sure, and sure. I'll mention others, too. I just happened to mention those because those did happen to be prominent ones. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't meant to be politically conservative or politically liberal. I mean, those terms are really culture-dependent. Uh, in the late days of the Soviet Union, it was the liberals that were in favor of uh, liberty and breaking away from the uh, the old conservative Soviet Union. I know that's a strange way of looking at it, but uh, that's the way the language was used. Those, those, those words themselves really depend on a particular cultural and political context. But no, there's no one-to-one mapping uh, by any means. Uh, the, the gospel is not, first of all, a message, a political message in any specific culture. But it is broadly a theologically political message in that it is an imperial message. And so it's, let me put it, here's the way we should put it. Right. The gospel of Jesus Christ is designed to dethrone all rivals to Jesus Christ, and in that sense, it's political. Now, those rivals can be artistic rivals, that is, rivals uh, in the arts. We would say in the 20th century, the perverted art of Picasso, and today a lot of the just uh, horrific music and so on, and leaders in that. Uh, it's true in philosophy, with philosophers like uh, Rorty, Rorty and uh, Derrida, and mm. like that. Of course, I'm just using quick examples. But yeah, of course. Also true in politics. It's designed to, to, to dethrone politics and politicians that are rivals to in a war with Jesus Christ. So in that sense, anytime there is a potential idol, anytime there is a rival authority to set itself up against Jesus Christ, the gospel is designed to dethrone that authority and stress the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is in that sense, in that sense alone, that the gospel is, uh, is political. Right, gotcha. So I mean, this this is this is what makes the 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 Christian gospel different than Islamic Sharia. Yes, that's precisely correct. Uh, the problem with Islam, well, there are a lot of problems, right? But really, Islam <laughs> is an ethical religion, transcendent, and Christianity is a redemptive religion that yes is transcendent, but also very imminent. Uh, it's centered in. Not just the lordship of Jesus Christ, but his, but his lordship as it comes to the forefront and his atoning death on the cross and his great sacrifice for our sins. And the reason that Jesus can be Lord is precisely, according to Philippians 2, because he humbled himself to death. So, it was put this way by a dear friend one time, and I'll never forget this, Ryan. Here's a nice little nomenclature for it. Uh, God's law, which really, in a sense, is the flip side of the gospel, is hmm. to be embraced, it can't be imposed. Um, huh. that's an important, that's an important distinction. The law of God first is placed in human hearts. So when we speak about the law of God in, uh, in society, the pervasiveness of the law of God first, we're not talking about a highly centralized, uh, view like the ancient Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, or even, uh, the Soviet Union, or, and I must say sadly to a less extent Washington DC and London, hmm. um, and in Canada there in Toronto and so on. Uh, it's not a highly centralized system at all. The Bible speaks when it speaks of political patterns, as in ancient Israel, as highly decentralized. So this is not a matter of somebody imposing law. I mean, within the general boundaries of uh, the Ten Commandments, of uh, the illegality of murder and theft and so on, which I think most people would recognize as a part of God's revelation, people embrace God's law when they're, uh, the Holy Spirit of God opens their hearts to the truth. And even 
even unbelievers in God's common grace can recognize the benefits of God's law. A Sharia law, really, is the attempt at top-down imposition of law to force individuals to accept uh, the Islamic faith and Islamic ethics. Huh. But And this is a fundamental point that I think people don't understand about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason that Christianity, though it, all, it hasn't always done this consistently, but the reason that Christianity can afford to stress true religious liberty is because we can trust the Holy Spirit. But there's no Holy Spirit in Islam. Right. Everything must be put right. in the hands of a coercive state to accomplish uh, a religious conformity. But Christians don't have to do that. Christians believe that if all individuals are free to, to declare the gospel, free to declare the truth, then the Holy Spirit will work on human hearts. And this is why, though it may sound strange to some, that a society influenced by Christianity can permit the practice of certain, uh, can permit Muslims and mosques as long as they don't try to impose their views on anybody else. And Christians, why can we permit this? Because we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is one fundamental, I've just used a few minutes to describe fundamentally how Christian law and gospel are different from uh, Sharia law. Right, right. No, that's uh, that's really helpful. And I guess uh, related to that, uh, on another branch, you've written that uh, there are many Christians in our day who have been enticed or intimidated into believing that there's this false dilemma between private faith and public life, uh, that uh, the total lordship of God and his word over my personal prayer life, for example, is great. Um, but in my politics, in matters of economics, in mainstream news and entertainment, um, you, you observe a lot of Christians thinking and acting pretty similarly to the rest of the world and going along to get along. Can you just say a little bit about how how this happened? Yeah, that's a, there are a number of factors there, and it's pretty complex, but I'll mention a, a couple of them. First of all, this notion of the distinction between a private Christianity and a sort of public, neutral, religiously neutral realm is something that no one in biblical times, no Christian, would have even considered. In fact, nobody else would have either. Uh, this distinction, the distinction largely began... Uh, well, indicated in the Renaissance, but particularly in the European Enlightenment. It's interesting what happened. You had until that time essentially the notion of the sacred, and sacredness was to impact every area of life. Hmm. Then the Enlightenment comes along and says, well, let's create a division. There's nothing wrong with the sacred, but let's sort of push the sacred off into the family and the church. And then other areas of life, that's we'll call that the secular. And then they will sort of peacefully coexist as long as each one stays within its own zone, its own bounds. But then, of course, we come in the last 50 years or so in Canada, England, the United States. Yeah. And essentially, the secular has pushed the sacred away and said, no, even in your families and churches, we don't want you practicing the faith. Even there, there are questionable things. And if they could, a number of secularists would purge the Christian faith from anywhere except between your two ears, and maybe even there. So that's one factor. Now, another one is that in the church itself, there was a, a sort of a corresponding development, a false form of pietism. Hmm. Now, there is a good form of the original pietism of going back to God, a heart for God, and away from the cold, sterile orthodoxy, and that's legitimate. But unfortunately, uh, among some, it developed in the direction, the only important thing is my sort of horizontal, uh, I'm sorry, vertical experience, uh, 
suspiciously like exactly what the Enlightenment sort of secularists were saying. Yeah, yeah. And that's true, and, and that's one of the great ironies is that the, the secularists were saying, we don't believe that Jesus Christ should be mentioned or should be thought to be Lord in uh, education uh, or, or politics or the arts or business. And many of these pietists said, oh, we agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, 200 so years later, it's the church saying it. it. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I guess in, in, light, of, uh, in light of all that, uh, that you've just said, what uh, what would it look like, sort of where the rubber meets the road? What would it look like uh, for Christians to live out the full gospel in their public life uh, as well as in private? Yeah, excellent. I think that's, in many ways, isn't it, Ryan, one of the most important questions you've asked. Well, there are several steps here. I think they're the negative steps, we might say, and the positive. We might say we need to backtrack, <laughs> take a few steps backward before we can take this in the right direction. Sure. One yeah. of them, the first is get, is get rid of the idea that our Christianity can be limited to our private times and uh, to our uh, families and at most our churches. We can't just sort of take our Christianity on and off as we would a hat. I'm going to wear my yeah. Christian hat yeah. today because I'm going to church, but then when I leave the church, I take my Christian hat off. We can't do that. We need to recognize we're called to be distinctively Christian everywhere we are. Uh, second of all, this also means we must get rid of the idea that there is any such thing as religious neutrality. Uh, people huh. often think, well, uh -huh. it's okay for you to be a Christian in these private realms, but when you come into the, let's just say, the voting booth, how dare you uh, implement your Christian convictions? You have to set them aside. Mm. But really, and I, I, I must say this boldly and sort of sad, that really is to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord everywhere and in all things, and not to recognize his lordship is really to, to deny him. Um, and we're warned in the word of God that if we're ashamed of him, that he will be ashamed of us. So what is it? Yeah, yeah. So I guess, uh, you, you can, uh, you can either bow or not bow. Like you can't, uh, like sort of stoop and pretend you're tying your shoe. That's, that's right. That's right. So positively, Number one, Christians need to make the commitment that they're going to be Christian and act in a Christian way, following Jesus Christ and his word wherever they are. But uh, that second point is crucial, and that's where I want to elaborate. Many Christians don't know how to live Christianly in all areas of life because they don't read the entire Bible. Now, the Bible doesn't address every single conceivable issue. It doesn't give the value of pie. Right, right. It doesn't how you, tell you how to make an apple pie. It doesn't tell you what the limits of ancient China were. But it does give you foundational truths in a number of issues on food and economics and uh, dress and how men and women should treat one another, how children uh, should be reared. Uh, it talks about, by implication, matters in the arts, things that are beautiful. Uh, certainly in education, how children uh, and uh, older and folks, are, uh, college, let's say college folks, are to be educated. Um, this is true with respect to science. The Bible speaks of, though it's not a book of, of uh, modern science, certainly there are foundational elements in it. But sadly, when a lot of Christians read the Bible, they read around those things. Requirements of war, how Christians, are, how God's people are to conduct war, for example. So there are all sorts of foundational things in the Bible about how we're to act in a Christian way. Christians need to read the Bible and know these things so that they know how to act in a Christian way. So, for example, when a, let's just take two or three 
vocations. Let's take someone today in our information revolution that's a software writer, a software architect. Sure. The yeah. Bible doesn't say specifically how you're supposed to <clears throat> arrange that uh, the zeros and the ones and so on, but it does give us a foundational truths on how we're to think about software writing and and uh, and uh, copyright laws and how we're to use these things for for the Lord's glory. So the goal of the goal of Christians in any area of life is to look at God's revelation, including His creational norms, in uh, chapters one and two of uh, Genesis, to explore God's creational revelation, which is uh, goes right along with and is synthesized with His written revelation, to examine that revelation, and to act according to those in whatever God's called them to do. Now that's true if you're involved in sales, if you're selling automobiles. It's true if you're teaching. It's true if you're involved in the arts. If you're uh, a musician, uh, it's true. Uh, not just true in in preaching and teaching. Certainly in the church. Certainly that's true. But whatever God's called us to do in medicine, a nurse. My wife Sharon is a nurse. Mm. Uh, she's a retired nurse. She had to think. Well, how? What does it mean according to the Word of God and God's creational revelation to live as a nurse to think medically and about health? So whatever area of life it is, every Christian every day has to say, how am I to do this? One final example, I have several friends that are uh, young, uh, that are business owners, owners of small businesses. They have to look at themselves and say, now what is it like? How do I treat my employees according to the Word of God? How do I treat my customers according to the Word of God? Uh, how do I make business decisions at the end of the year, dispersing funds and setting prices? How do I do that? In every in, in every decision like that, we must ask, what is the godly thing to do? And in that way, the gospel of Jesus Christ impacts every single area of life. I mean, that that's that's a pretty comprehensive um, set of guidelines there, yeah. uh, and it boils down to Christians read your Bibles. That's yeah. uh, and act on your Bible and act on it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, a- Andrew, you mentioned. Um, you mentioned uh, Ethelbert Stauffer's book, Christ. Is it Christ Among the Caesars or Christ, no, and, Christ of the Caesar? and the Caesars? Christ and it's, the Caesars. Uh, yes, his name is S T A U F F E R. It's easy enough to find on Amazon. There should be, it's not in print, but there, there should be used copies. Christ and the Caesars. Okay, great. Um, would you uh, would you recommend anything else for 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 uh, listeners who would be interested in finding out more about this subject? Yes. Um, I was thinking uh, about three sources. There are many more, but three to get it started. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I would strongly recommend, um, uh, your, your listeners may have heard of Francis Schaeffer. Uh, a couple of books of his, in fact, any book of his would be, would be pretty good on this topic. But A Christian Manifesto uh, is just uh, outstanding, uh, as well as his book, um, uh, The God Who Is There. Uh, and, uh, well, they're just others. Escape from Reason, but particularly start with Francis Schaeffer's A Christian Manifesto, would be just excellent. And then, uh, a book by, um, a fellow Canadian there, a fellow to you, Al Walter's book, Creation Regained. It's a small book. Yeah. But wonderful. Yeah, wonderful Joe mentioned that, right? uh, Joe mentioned that, uh, the other week, actually. So that's, yeah. uh, that's a good kind of, uh, reinforcement there. Yeah, good, good primer on that. And the third would be, uh, maybe we'll call it a distant third, my own book called Christian Culture and Introduction. Uh, you can get that online uh, also. And I, Well, I think actually uh, the Ezra Institute may 
I'm not mistaken, but... Yeah, I think we uh, do. We definitely used yeah. to. I'll take a look. Yeah. Uh, I'll let you know. Maybe we'll those, get some more. Those, no, there's so much more. And if people want, they can contact me at, uh, at cclchristianculture.com, Andrew Sandlin. I can give more. Uh, but those, I thought, would be three good good places to start. Well, that's fantastic. Andrew, thanks, uh, thanks so much for taking this phone call with us. Really appreciate having you. You bet. I appreciate Ryan, you, and I uh, treasure your friendship, and you and uh, Joe Boot and all of the team there at, uh, at the Ezra Institute. Just eager to see what God's going to do with us in the future. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. All right. God bless you. God bless you. Have a great day. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Podcast for Cultural Reformation. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and give us a rating or a review. And now, in addition to iTunes, you can find our podcast on Stitcher and Google Play Music. For more Ezra Institute resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.